I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2016. Enjoy. I have had the pleasure on a couple of previous occasions of speaking with someone who is probably one of the smartest uh, human beings on the planet and certainly one of its most gifted writers. I'm talking about Leonard Mladenow. And um, we have spoken, I believe, twice before on the morning show, including on one occasion when we talked about an extraordinary book called The Grand Design, which uh, Dr. Mladenow uh, co-wrote with Stephen Hawking. Uh, we also spoke about his book called, an award-winning bestseller called Subliminal. His latest book, in many respects, may be the most extraordinary yet, a book called The Upright Thinkers, The Human Journey from Living in Trees to Understanding the Cosmos. Uh, in this book, uh, Dr. Mladenow is, in a sense, attempting the near impossible by trying to sketch for us uh, in one single book uh, our journey as human beings from relatively primitive beings living in trees, uh, gathering and foraging, to the human beings that we are today capable of, uh, of amazing uh, intellectual thought and technological innovation. How did we get from there to here? <laughs> and where are we headed from here? And uh, these are, of course, uh, uh, exceptionally uh, immense questions of, of huge scope. And yet I think uh, the author's done an, an exceptionally uh, impressive job of taking us on uh, such uh, an extraordinary journey. And I really feel privileged to have this opportunity to uh, speak with Leonard Melodinov again about his book, The Upright Thinkers, The Human Journey from Living in Trees to Understanding the Cosmos, which is published by Vintage Books, a division of Penguin Random House. Leonard Melodinov, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks, Greg. Really nice to be here. I really uh, appreciate this. I want to ask you, I mean, we have so many uh, questions of substance to deal with, and uh, I don't want to take too much time with this kind of preliminary bit of fluff, but I want to ask you about the fact that although this book deals with such weighty matters, such huge and complex questions, uh, you really inject quite a lot of humor along the way in this book of otherwise tremendous substance. I just wonder how much of that is a conscious effort on your part to, in a sense, maybe leaven such uh, intimidating, uh, intellectually uh, 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 rigorous work with a dash of, of, of humor? Or is that just kind of a natural outflow of who you are as a person? <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit of both. I, um, my aim in writing the book was to make it entertaining, uh, readable, and to present the you know the, the human journey in a, in a in a in a manner that's more like a story than than a book about science, and so in places I if I thought I felt like there was a place to, to add humor I would do that. Other times it just it just came to me. You know, years ago I spent some time writing for television. I wrote for shows that you might expect from a scientist like Star Trek: The Next Generation, MacGyver. But I also wrote for some comedies. I uh, the old show Night Court. I wrote for the comic uh, Gary Shandling. Um, so <clears throat> in my younger days, I used to have a sense of humor, and every once in a while, a little, a little uh, taste of that comes back. Well, and as you write in the uh, prologue to the book, in the wrong hand, science can be famously boring. 
And uh, so I, I applaud you for writing a book like this and uh, having it not only be really interesting, but also never, ever uh, boring. The, the overall construction of the book says a lot about this intriguing human journey on which you take us. The fact that uh, the, certain, the, the, the opening section of the book covers a certain span of human history uh, the second and third sections, very different spans of history or time as well. Uh, explain to our listeners what I'm talking about, the sort of lopsided chronological framework of this book. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our advancement is, is exponential, which means that, well, to, in the most general terms, that it, it's in, this, the rate at which we're learning and uh, advancing in our culture is uh, constantly accelerating. And so the beginning of the book starts with our drive to know uh, the, the development of curiosity in the human brain. I start even, even before, you know, when we lived before we, we settled down, we lived on the, on the, in the African savanna, and I talk about how, what drove us to form the first settlements. The, um, and those were spiritual questions, religious issues and through the development of reading and, and arithmetic and why we developed those, which were for government and bureaucracy. <laughs> not, not very exciting purposes, but uh, they, we eventually put them to great use. But all of that, that journey is, it took, uh, well, millions of years to, to go from being an ape to uh, what we call a modern human, and then it took many tens of thousands of years to settle down and then thousands of years to develop the city. So that's all the first part of the book. It, it, it's bringing us from living this to the, in the savannah to civilization and uh, the birth of reason and, and philosophy. And then the second part of the book talks about how we develop the ideas and the, and the approach of modern science. So uh, it's really a, less than, not so much the... Um, the subject matter of science, but how we how we learn to learn about the universe, and then I go through the development of the major sciences, chemistry, physics, and biology, and all the crazy people who who uh, were responsible for getting those off the ground. And, and that journey took hundreds and hundreds of years. And then the final journey, what really started about a hundred years ago, and it's just a, a matter of decades. And that's where we made the next great leap, which was from understanding the macroscopic world, the world that we see and that we experience, to understand the invisible hidden world of the atom and um, what's, be, what's beyond our senses. And due to some technologies that uh, evolved in the late 19th century, we started to be able to probe that. And we found that the laws that, that we had thought applied to the, to the world, that applied to the world that we feel and see and smell, don't really work on that level, and we had to have a whole new set of laws. That was the so-called quantum revolution, and that's what really. Uh, well, that was a, that was a big jump in our own thinking to be able to accept that things behave in bizarre ways, and that there was a, a hidden world. But it's what led to our modern society, to everything that that we that defines us today. To you know, telephones, uh, cable, TV, computers, lasers, uh, medical technology. I mean, even the what we're learning about the genes today would, would, would not be possible without the technologies of quantum theory. So really, uh, that, that was a, a kind of revolution that people don't think about too much, but it was a huge revolution in the way humans live. Hmm. I appreciated uh, 
uh, all the information packed into the second chapter of the book, which is called Curiosity, which not only uh, explains how uh, maybe uniquely human curiosity emerged, but, but also really traces uh, the, the development uh, of, of what occurred before the emergence of, of Homo sapiens. I especially appreciated a, kind of a wonderful moment when you are talking about the discovery of this uh, skeleton of someone who came to be known as Lucy, uh, one of the, the first examples of what was then a newly discovered species of Australopithecus. And uh, as you're explaining the significance of Lucy and, and, uh, and her peers, shall we say, you create this wonderful image of us to help us understand sort of the sweep of human development uh, in, 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 in which you ask us to imagine living in a house and your mother next door and so on. I want you to trace out that picture that you create. It is so wonderful, and it really helps us understand the uh, sprawling sense of time that we're dealing with here uh, in terms of the emergence of, of human beings. Yeah, well, imagine if you live in a house and your your mother's next door, as you said, and, and then next door to that is her mother, and next door to that is her mother, and so on. So then that street really contains all the generations of uh, of our human heritage. So the question is, um, as you travel down the street, you're traveling backwards in time. And uh, how far do you have to go to find Lucy? Well, Lucy is about... Um, um, 100,000 generations, so you have to go 100,000 houses. It, it's, uh, it's quite a drive. <laughs> you suggest maybe about 4,000 miles. Yes, 4,000 miles to reach Lucy. Uh, so that, that tells you as, you, as, you, as you're traveling backward in time, I was trying to give an image that, that, that showed how far we've traveled from, from her you know, to, to us. And you know, if you go back to what I was talking about, say the quantum uh, revolution, that would have been, I guess, about you know five houses down. So it's still on your same block. So it's an interesting way to get a feeling for our progress and uh, really the, the the exponential growth of of our progress, the exponential speed up. Tell us about the emergence of someone who is known, in a sense, as erect man, and what that signifies in our development. Well, the, the book is called, the t- subtitle of the book is The Human Journey from Living in the Trees to Understanding the Cosmos. And, you know, Erect Man was the uh, human being that, that first stood up and stood straight. And that was a huge step for us because of two things. One is that it allowed us uh, to look outside at the world and to get a, a really more global picture of the environment. And that, that sounds almost trivial, but do you remember when... You first started driving. I don't know if your teacher told you this, but they used to say, uh, get the big picture. You know, when you're right. driving the car, don't just stare at the guy's tail in front of you, <clears throat> and then you'll end up hitting him. But look ahead and, and see, get a perspective of what's going on. And, and that was really very important that people could, instead of looking down at the ground, could look ahead and get, uh, look around them and get a, a feeling for what the world looks like. And the well, other thing that it did was um, it freed up our hands to hold things and to build things. And so that was really a, a, a huge step in, in our development, even though it's a really a rather an unsung step. Exactly. And so we start developing things like stone choppers and much later arrows and, of course, eventually airplanes and so on. Um, you make a really interesting observation in this chapter that I want you to just say a word uh, about. Uh, 
humans, at one point you write, humans seem to have a certain built-in understanding of the physical world, a sophisticated, intuitive feeling for the environment that complements our built-in curiosity and is far more developed in humans than in other species. You, you, you write this uh, after telling us about a, a modern-day experiment involving infants, and, uh, which is pretty interesting, but, but I want you to say a word about how this was true even back in the time of Homo erectus and, and, the, and the evidence that, that from our earliest roots we have been set apart from others in, 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 in the animal kingdom by this uh, sort of uh, intuitive understanding of the world around us. Well, what's interesting is that if you take young infants, uh, say six months old, and uh, infants who really haven't had much of a chance to explore the world, they don't walk yet, uh, you, you, can, um, you can do experiments with them where you show them physics situations, cylinders rolling, colliding with each other, going up and down inclined planes, situations that they haven't really had uh, any or much experience with and don't have the brain to really analyze. But you can, if you're clever, you can understand what their understanding is of those situations. And that's, that's because infants will behave differently when they're surprised by something than when they're viewing something that they see as normal. So if, if something surprises them, they'll stare at it. And otherwise, they, their eyes tend to dart around a lot and they look around. So scientists measure uh, the, uh, the eye movements of, of infants as they're watching certain physics collisions. And what they found is that even very, very young children who, who have no experience of the world seem to understand Newton's law. <laughs> so if, um, if a billiard ball collides with another billiard ball and doesn't bounce off in the way that it should, uh, based on the normal laws of nature, uh, the child will be surprised. So that, that shows that uh, we seem to be born with some certain innate sense of how the Earth works. And if you look back at the tools and the um, developments of, of uh, the, the precursors to humans, we, we see that 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 reflects an, uh, an understanding that other animals don't seem to have of how the how the um, laws of physics work. So what's interesting about that to me is that you know we we say that Isaac Newton uh, is is one of the main people responsible for inventing the laws of, of physics, but really Isaac Newton did was describe what everybody already knows, but put it into a mathematical form, and. The quantum revolution uh, was a huge leap because that was where humanity went beyond that. So we went beyond anything that is part of our experience or of our you know, innate nature and started to probe a whole, whole other universe. Hmm. You, uh, you help us understand uh, a very different uh, theory about the emergence of, of what we might collectively call <clears throat> culture and the fact that that culture maybe did not emerge as had long been presumed out of sort of practical necessity of, of matters of survival, people coming together for that reason, but actually coming together more for, for mental and spiritual reasons, that that is when we first began to take some of these extraordinary steps. And the discovery of, of a location in southeastern Turkey, a very, very 
ancient structure, maybe the world's oldest known church, uh, is some indication of this. Well, in school, you know, you learn about something called the agricultural revolution, where they teach you that about 10,000 years ago, people settled down, gave up the nomadic life in order to grow crops and have a better life. And that is actually totally wrong. And, and like many stories that I've learned as I was doing the research for this book, it, it's, a, it's a myth. And recent science shows that it wasn't that way at all. We can study the remains of early peoples who were either nomads or the first uh, agricultural humans. And we can study from, see from their bones that, that the nomads were in better health and uh, more, had better nutrition than those who settled down and had, a, in general, skeletons that were in better shape. Agriculture is extremely difficult, and scientists who study the history of agriculture know that, you know, without modern machines, agriculture is a punishing uh, occupation. And so it doesn't seem that that's really true that we settled down for that reason. But on the other hand, what we've found recently is that there are ruins from about that time of, as you said, uh, structures that seem to be the first churches. Uh, and these these were places that people visited at first from far far and wide, and they didn't live near there, but they would they would get they would be wanderers, and they would gather there periodically, and they would have some sorts of ceremony. And we find the remains there, and then eventually, when we find the first settlements, we found that there are signs of spiritual and cultural um, artifacts there. For instance, uh, the way people treated their dead, they would bury their families under their their under their homes, and they seem to also uh, uh, form certain objects with their skeletons. And so that, we're not quite sure what they were doing, but it seemed to be some kind of spiritual enterprise. And, and yet in those first villages, they weren't really cities as we define them today because there was no specialization of labor. They were just families where everyone did everything for themselves, but they lived together, and people questioned why they did, and it seems to be for spiritual reasons. Hmm. And that didn't develop into real cities for thousands of years. So it seemed that Around 10,000 years ago, what happened was people started asking questions about what is life, what is death, and they settled down so they could be together and they could worship together and ask those questions. And that's what really formed the roots of science that came later. Hmm. One of the things you say about, uh, about us, that is human beings versus other animal species on Earth, is that one human mind can influence the thoughts of another in a very complex and nuanced manner. And, of course, that comes because of our unique capacity uh, for language. And I love the way that you trace the significance of that through the development of villages and, and cities and, and what the creation of cities meant then in terms of creating things like government and means of cooperation on a scale never seen before. We ultimately take ourselves to the second portion of your book, which which is involved with the emergence of, of reason and ultimately of, of the sciences. And it seems to me that as much as anything, this portion of the book is uh, meant, among other things, to dispel us of, of, of a myth that uh, the propulsion of scientific discovery uh, is mostly due to certain isolated geniuses and visionaries. And um, you really... Uh, call that into question as being a, a real serious misunderstanding 
of how science emerged and of how scientific breakthroughs uh, occurred. Uh, explain how this, on the one hand, can be a, a story of revolutionaries and yet not individuals creating this, in a sense, on their own. Well, again, there are a lot of myths uh, of how we certain discoveries were made. Sort of the, the story that you normally hear of science is something like the Hollywood version of people's lives. You know, it's based on a true story or it's inspired by a true story, but it's not the real story. And I suppose those myths grew up so that we have heroes and, and we condense time and space and, and it's more interesting to tell the story of a discovery that happens in one instant uh, than something that, that, that took a lifetime to come to. But the, the reality is that scientists are passionate and confused people who are groping in the dark, who are searching, who are explorers, detectives, and they find clues, they don't understand them, they you know, eventually piece things together, come to a, come to a, a story or a conclusion that, that, that that makes some sense, but they probably don't, in most cases, understand it themselves even then. And it, it, it takes later generations to, to even work out the consequences of what most scientists uh, discover. So, for instance, take Newton. He didn't see, he didn't come to his theory by watching an apple fall. He didn't come to his uh, great theories uh, that one summer, you know, where he spent the, the year where he spent the, where there was a plague and he was hiding out at his a mother's farm. Um, he, he started on his journey then, but it took him decades to uh, work out the, the really the consequences of the ideas that he had then. And, uh, and he, in, along the way, did many crazy things that, that today we would think he was a nut. Um, he looked in the Bible for signs, codes about uh, when the world's going to end. He spent a lot of time in alchemy. Um, he, he did a lot of things that went nowhere that no one talks about. Um, interspersed with the stuff that he did that went somewhere because uh, he wasn't just a genius who saw things clearly and wrote it all down and, and revolutionized the world. He was someone who spent decades investigating all sorts of blind alleys hmm. with great energy and fervor and, <laughs> and uh, eventually found discovered some things that, that were true. <laughs> yeah. As you write at one point, we tend to, this is actually when you're talking about Galileo, but it applies to Newton as well, I think. We tend to think of the development of science as a series of discoveries, each leading to the next through the efforts of some solitary intellectual giant with a clear and extraordinary vision. But the vision of the great discoverers of intellectual history is often more muddled than clear, and their accomplishments more indebted to their friends and colleagues and luck than the legends show, and that the discoverers themselves often wish to admit. And of course, uh, such understanding is not going to be the grist of, of, of Hollywood scripts, uh, but fortunately that's not what we're talking about here today. Could you just say a quick word about the way in which all of us should feel a sense of indebtedness to Isaac Newton? At one point you say, today we all reason like Newtonians in all kinds of things that we say on a day-to-day -day basis. Can you just quickly uh, explain what you're talking about there? Well, I appreciate your energy in this interview, and I don't want to break the momentum. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, the, the, many of the words and terms that we use uh, come directly from, from Newton's ideas. And uh, even to say that you have the, the, the potential... <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to accomplish great energy, <laughs> I mean, it's just really it's infused 
the way we think and we, we talk about everything from sports to business to uh, our personal lives uh, <clears throat> excuse me is all framed in in the concepts that Newton invented that he saw operating in, in the world around him and so and the idea that the world operates according to strict laws that that one thing causes another really wasn't that ingrained at all into into people's thinking until Newton came along and then that's why they sometimes call his ideas the mechanical universe, the clockwork universe, because after Newton, everyone in all kinds of science, not just in physics, but in chemistry and biology, they started to uh, to look at the world as, as running like a clockwork and, and everything affecting everything else and things happening for, for good um, reason according to natural law. And that was a huge change because before that, people believed in uh, the approach of Aristotle, which was that everything happens for a purpose. It's more of a religious view of the world rather than because uh, that things happening uh, because of following laws. You ultimately, of course, take us through the discovery of the cell, the discovery of the atom, and uh, and quantum physics and string theory and all of the stuff that uh, a show like The Big Bang Theory sort of uh, introduces to us. You, you really help us understand some of the uh, uh, amazing breakthroughs. You end your book, however, or at least uh, before the epilogue, with a personal moment involving your own father and uh, and the stroke he suffered towards the very end of his life. And I'm struck by the fact that you would inject uh, such a personal note uh, in this particular book. You do it beautifully. Explain why that moment is here. Well, my father had uh, just a seventh-grade education and didn't... Um didn't understand or, or ever learn any science, but he was very interested in in how the universe works in particular because he wanted to know what, what is our place in the world. And, you know, he went through the Holocaust and saw horrible things happen and experienced great horrors, and he was trying to put it all together. And when I was first learning science, I had a lot of discussions on that point with him and, and a lot of late-night, uh, you know, uh, talks about what it all means. And so even back then, I thought that one day I would write a book like this explaining the meaning of science and how we came to know what we know and what it says about us as people. And, you know, he's long gone, and it's decades later, but I finally wrote the book. And and interspersed in the book, I have a, a few snippets of, of stories that he told me that I think were, were very relevant. Well, and um, I, I'm sorry, I have a few snippets of... Um, Interspersed in the book, I have a few snippets of stories that he told me that were very relevant to this, and and so uh, in the end, I, I end with uh, really with, with his end and 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 a talk that we had about the nature of the universe, uh, you know, shortly before he died. Hmm. I love that, and uh, I love a, a lot of personal touches that. Uh uh, are part of this. It just makes the book all the more compelling. Again, it's called The Upright Thinkers, The Human Journey from Living in Trees to Understanding the Cosmos, published by Vintage Books, a division of Penguin Random House, the author Leonard Mladenov. Leonard Mladenov, congratulations on writing such a superb book. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>